Hi everyone, good morning or good afternoon depending on when you're listening to this. Um, my name is Paige Connor and I am a third year student at the University of Virginia, go Hoos, and I'm currently in a class called Jewish Weddings taught by the fabulous Vanessa Oaks. And to any UVA students listening, I highly recommend this class. For my final project, I thought it would be both educational and fun, emphasis on the fun, to make a podcast episode to give some tips and tricks on how to attend a Jewish wedding and to not embarrass yourself. So with that little intro, I present to you a mini-series called So You're Going to a Jewish Wedding, Now What? I'll be honest, the title for this podcast is misleading. The term Jewish wedding is far too broad. I mean, for starters, there are Orthodox Jewish weddings, Reformed Jewish weddings, and Conservative Jewish weddings. Orthodox, Reform, and Conservative are the three largest branches of modern Judaism. And on top of that, there are numerous interfaith possibilities. For example, there are Jewish Hindu weddings, Jewish Greek weddings, Jewish Catholic weddings. You're probably getting the sense by now how long I could list off different types of Jewish weddings. I wanted to start with this for a few reasons. The first is to illustrate the complexity and uniqueness of Jewish weddings. And another reason is that not all Jewish weddings are the same. And some of these aspects discussed in this podcast may not apply to, say, your Jewish cousin's wedding. I am learning just as I hope you are learning by listening to this podcast, and I might overgeneralize about certain topics. That being said, this is the information I have learned throughout my class this semester and my thoughts and opinions, so I hope you enjoy. So you're going to a Jewish wedding, now what, is sponsored by Secret Gardens. Secret Gardens is a local florist capable of all your floral needs. Camellia, hydrangea, magnolia, herbs, vines, as well as specialty spring bulbs, perennials, and seasonal stems offer garden flair to all of the designs here. This specific episode is entitled Six Objects Associated with Jewish Weddings. So let's dive into it. Picture this, you're invited to a wedding. You come to find out it's a Jewish wedding and panic strikes. What do I wear? What do I say? Why do they even break glass? I think in understanding the significance behind the objects used in the wedding helps you understand the shared values of a couple. Each object, as I will get into further detail later, is picked for a reason, and there are different styles and types of an object. So many choices. So knowing a little more about how these choices have developed within the marriage tradition can help you learn a lot about the couple. Even if these aspects seem small, like wearing a veil for instance, they can say a lot. And not to mention, you'll be able to impress your Jewish friends the next time you're at their house and can point out their ketubah. And with that, the ketubah, by definition, is a Jewish marriage contract that is signed just prior to the wedding ceremony. Aside from the couple, two witnesses also sign it, and then normally it is read aloud during the ceremony. Traditionally, it was written in Aramaic and outlined different obligations that the groom and bride had to one another. The style of the text was primarily focused on the legalities of the marriage. This included acquiring, yes, acquiring, the bride, and the husband agreeing to provide his wife with three things. Food, clothing, and sex. I mean, what more could a girl want? Today, some Jews maintain this traditional text, while many Jews have adapted the language to add English or use just English and style the text to be more inclusive to both partners in the marriage. Among liberal Jewish couples, it has become more popular to customize the text. The style of the text can mimic the life they are excited to build together. One excerpt I will share is from a secular humanist ketubah, and it states, We pledge to each other our mutual trust and respect. We will offer support and encouragement for personal growth and the fulfillment of our shared dreams. 
As you can see, the language of this text emphasizes the love a couple shares for one another, rather than acquiring of the bride. And, not to mention, ketubas are simply beautiful. Pause this right now and go look up pictures of ketubas and you'll know what I mean. The colors and designs on the text make it a piece of art that can be displayed in their home. After the signing of the ketubah, traditionally in a Jewish wedding, the next part is the veiling of the bride, which is done by the groom and is called the bedeckin. This tradition comes from the biblical story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. A little backstory in case you aren't familiar, Jacob loved Rachel and he worked for so many years to marry her. But her sister, Leah, stepped in undetected because her face was covered with a veil. Crazy, right? And honestly, poor Jacob. So, the point of the veiling done by the groom is to ensure that he isn't getting duped into marrying somebody else. Traditional veils in Judaism are opaque, so it isn't see-through. But nowadays, this may seem silly because obviously you know who you're marrying. So for modern non-Orthodox Jews, their veil is sheer and resembles the typical image of an American bride. Today, the Bedeccan has a number of interpretations of its symbolism. Most often, the symbol of the veil is referred to as the modesty of the bride. It also signals a commitment of the groom to cloth and protect the bride which honestly is outdated in my opinion. Some couples forgo the ceremony, but there are a few ways for a progressive or more liberal Bedeccan ceremony. One way is by having both partners cloth each other, which is a statement that they both will provide for one another. Or couples can enter a room back to back and turn to see each other for the first time. This takes the veil out of the picture completely. So be prepared when you're at a wedding for a veil, no veil, a sheer veil. There are many ways for this to play out. After the Bedeccan, the procession starts and the rabbi makes their way to the chuppah, followed by a long, long list of family members. The chuppah, which is the canopy normally made of white cloth or sheet that the couple gets married under. It honestly, it looks like a little tent with four posts, if you can imagine that. They can be made out of other materials as well, and the canopy is a symbol of the home that the couple will soon build together in married life. Similar to the ketubah, this has become a personalized part of a couple's wedding. Traditionally, four men hold the poles that support the canopy. Today, a variety of people can hold up the chuppah, and normally it's either family members or members of each partner's party. It is considered an honor to hold up the chuppah for the wedding. Other times, the chuppah will stand on its own, but family or friends may be honored by standing nearby, or they'll play another role in the ceremony. So, if you ever see a cute little tent-looking thing at a wedding ceremony, it may be Jewish. Now let's talk about drinking, because you can't celebrate something without a little wine, and especially if you're Jewish. The Kiddush cup, which, let me just add after doing a quick Google search, is not cheap. The Kiddush cup contains the wine that had a blessing over it, called the Kiddush. Let me be clear when I say, the wine itself is not blessed. Okay, <laughs> now that we have that out of the way, the couple normally drinks the wine after the Kiddush. And an interesting thing about Kiddush cups is that technically any cup can be used as long as it hasn't been used before. The cup then just has to be dedicated to sacred Jewish service. So you can't take a McDonald's cup and call it a day. For some couples, this means using a cup that has been passed down for generations. And for others, they're given one as a wedding gift. It really ranges. Couples can then continue to use their Kiddush cup in their household as a part of Friday night blessing. So you're going to a Jewish wedding, now what? is sponsored by Official Kosher Caterers. Whether it's for an intimate gathering at a downtown hotel, a corporate function at a bowling alley, a simcha of any kind, 
or a convention for hundreds, Official offers fresh, delicious, creative kosher catering and food service. Now it's time to mention an object I know you all will be familiar with, rings. And this has some super cool history behind it, so I definitely recommend looking into it. Also, let's just talk about how rings and marriage are interesting in general, and we've just become really accustomed to it. Jews originally did not marry with rings. This is a custom that has now been integrated into Jewish weddings. Historically, the groom had to offer a bride something of more worth than a present-day dime. When this happens, the groom isn't buying the wife per se, but he is buying exclusive intimacy with her, which is still a super weird thing to buy, but the woman does have to accept his offer. Another interesting part is that historically, during marriage ceremonies, the groom places the ring on the bride's right pointer finger, which is still common today, except the brides will normally switch the ring to their left wedding finger. So what about the groom? What about same-sex couples? Typically, two rings are now presented at the ceremony, which is called a double ring ceremony. And again, we can see that this is a way in which Jewish weddings have evolved alongside societal norms. The last object is probably the most associated object with Jewish weddings, the smashing of the glass. Normally, the groom steps down on a piece of glass wrapped in some cloth or in a bag. The glass can literally be anything. Some people choose to use colored glass, but you could really use something as simple as a light bulb. Word on the street is light bulbs give off the best sound, so feel free to drop in the comments what you think works best. If using a colorful piece of glass, many couples mail it to a company and create a mezuzah, which will contain the pieces of the glass along with some scripture. Arguably, the smashing of the glass is the most distinctive part about a Jewish wedding, because smashing of the glass seems a little strange, quote-unquote, from an outsider approach. It also has so many possible meanings behind it that I couldn't even try to cover them all. One common interpretation that resonates with me is that even on the most joyous occasions, there is still sadness because of the hardships that Jewish people have overcome. More specifically, that the temple was destroyed and does not exist. Breaking of the glass also has sexual connotations, but I won't get into that. So you can use your imagination. After the smashing of the glass, the crowd yells Mazel Tov, which is a Jewish phrase expressing congratulations or good luck. Mazel Tov can be said by anyone attending the wedding, so once you hear the glass shatter, be prepared to yell Mazel Tov. What I love about Jewish objects in a wedding, and what I love about this class, is learning about how they contain immense symbolism for the tradition as a whole. We also have seen throughout time how the meanings behind each object has been transformed, like the ketubah becoming more gender inclusive within liberal Judaism. Another thing I want to mention is that Jewish traditions have many interpretations and there isn't a right or wrong way to interpret something. And the choices that the couple makes and the objects that they include or the objects they change allows for unique expressions of their marriage and their relationship with one another. So with that, I hope you learned a little today. I hope you feel more comfortable if you go to a Jewish wedding and understand some of the symbolism behind the objects used. And if you have any questions, please feel free to drop them. And we're hopefully having a Q&A episode after this.